I found that the earth was not round in the way they write. Rather, it is in the shape of a pear, all very round, except where the nipple is, which is higher there. Or like someone who has a very round ball, and in one place it was like a woman's breast placed there, and that this part of the nipple is the highest and closest to the sky, and is below the equatorial line, and in this oceanic sea at the end of the east. That was top explorer and thoroughly mediocre oncology expert, as well as mediocre cartographer Christopher Columbus on his third voyage across the Atlantic when he was going completely and utterly nuts. But much like Christopher Columbus in his assessment of the world, we on today's episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind are going to be speaking about breast cancer. So, Similar, I guess. I'm here with I'm here with Josh Hurwitz, who is currently face palming at my quite frankly brilliant and very relevant introduction. But Josh, I guess we're t- going to talk about the most common type of uh, metastatic breast cancer, and that's the hormone receptor positive breast cancer space. We definitely are, Michael, and thank you for as always that brilliant introduction. I did not know Christopher Columbus kept a diary while he was going mad, but he obviously did. Apparently he kept two. One to basically show to his crew and lie about where they were in the Atlantic when they were completely lost. And one that was the honest truth of, I have no idea where I am. The things you learn on this podcast, right? Yes. And you can tell your patient, you can all tell your patients and your colleagues about this random fact. Absolutely. So, Josh, I think you've got the duty of giving us a bit of background on hormone receptor positive breast cancer. I do, Michael, and thank you for highlighting what we're talking about today. Hormone receptor positive breast cancer is, like many of the cancers that we talk about on this podcast, is rapidly developing and changing. There are a huge number of trials looking at treating hormone receptor positive breast cancer, but let's take a step back. The last few decades um, since the 1980s have seen a drastic increase in the number of treatment options in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. And Mikey, as the first question that I'm going to throw out here today, what do you define as hormone receptor positive breast cancer? That's a very good question because it's a spectrum, isn't it? It's expressed or the estrogen and progesterone receptor positivity is expressed as a percentage. Mm-hmm. The cutoff, though, I guess, is a matter of debate. Um, is it is it basically anything that's greater than 20 or 30% positive in the estrogen or progesterone setting, or am I completely underselling it? You would think that, but I think the ASCO guidelines state that if it's 1% or more, and that's also progesterone, if it's less than 10%, then generally it's considered a low hormone receptor positive breast cancer, but it's still positive. And that's the entity of effectively triple negative, isn't it? Where we um and are about giving hormone receptor positive treatment, which we're going to talk about this episode, but we also sort of think that it's much less likely to work. Exactly, Michael. And I think it's a really difficult space because sometimes it does work, sometimes it does not. But 
if you think of someone that has positive receptors and, you know, someone has 95%, likely they're going to respond better than someone that has 1%. And whilst I've spoken briefly about the development of hormone receptor positive breast cancer treatments, how it's improved, there's actually been drastic increases in treatments. If we talk about a chronological order, let's start with the, the SERMs, which are the selective estrogen receptor modulators. So I'm talking about, I think that's tamoxifen. You've got the aromatase inhibitors, letrozole and anastrozole. And then you've also got the SERDs, the selective estrogen receptor degraders, which is kind of, I think, the next line of therapy from an endocrine perspective. Now, if you're lost, that's okay. I think the important thing to talk about here is hormone receptor positive breast cancer overall survival. It continues to increase. I believe in a metastatic setting, it's, I think it's 55 or 57 months. So it's pretty high. And there are multiple lines of therapies. And of course, when you talk about molecular targets and options, that's also changing. Today, I'm going to briefly talk to you about a combination therapy before we go into our trials, which is a combination of CDK4-6 inhibitors plus an aromatase inhibitor. Michael, do you know much about the CDK4-6 inhibitors? Josh, you're going to have to uh, give me the full encyclopedic summary on this one. Uh, I know that CDK is a collection of intracellular cyclins from memory that are involved in cell proliferation, like all of these molecular oncological targets are, that is involved in cell proliferation and avoidance of the normal apoptotic mechanisms. Is that a general, a general enough answer for you? That's a great answer. Uh, here were great <laughs> general answers on oncology for the inquisitive mind. Yes, it's like if you're if you're uh, quizzed on a ward round, speaking to our junior uh, listeners, and your consultant asks, "What is the mechanism of this drug that I've never heard of?" If you say it interferes with cellular mechanisms that uh, stimulate cell proliferation and avoid apoptosis, you're pretty good bet for getting it right, at least partially. That's exactly right, but. You're right in saying it's an, it is inhibition of the cyclin-dependent kinase 4 and cyclin-dependent kinase 6, CD4-6 inhibitors, right? And the reason that these came about is that they realized that with the baseline endocrine resistance or endocrine therapies, there was huge resistance. So CDK4 and 6 are not only essential for G1 and S phase cell cycle transition, but also play a central role in the growth of hormone positive breast cancers. In theory, prior to these development, if you inhibit these, you can inhibit the cancer and thus many drugs were born. The three main ones that you might have heard of are pelvocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib. And all of these have been approved by the FDA, the TGA, the PBS for treatment of metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. In preclinical models, I would say abemocyclib as an example, it would promote sustained cell cycle arrest, leading to apoptosis or senescence with short-term inhibition of the particular cancer, and then they combine it. I think if we look at the future of hormone receptor positive breast cancers, because what do you do at some stage when people progress on these drugs, which ultimately most people, if not everyone, does? And this is when it gets a little bit more tricky. Usual second-line therapy is that of chemotherapy. Predominantly, people might use capecitabine as the first-line 
in the advanced setting after CDK4-6. Sometimes they switch to fulvestrant rather than aromatase inhibitor. Moving on, we've got things like genetic targets. So what I'm thinking of ESR1, so estrogen receptor 1. So 30% of people, I think it's actually 50% now, um, have this mutation, uh, which is essentially endocrine resistance. Now, CERD agents, which I mentioned previously, like fulvestrant, um, was the first in class to be approved, and they found that it actually works with people that have ESR1 mutations. This is a bit of a rabbit hole because there's multiple other resistant mechanisms to think about. So PIK3A mutations is another big one that people are looking into, and there's quite a few directed agents currently in trial at present. But it's fair to say that the success of CDK4-6, as we'll sort of talk about in a second, um, hasn't really been replicated by any of those more novel agents, particularly PIK3 kinase, which was touted as the next big thing and hasn't really lived up to its potential. But as you say, very much a rabbit hole and probably not something we should get into in any great depth on this episode. No. So I think the summary of when we talk about hormone receptor positive breast cancer in a metastatic setting is most patients should be able to tolerate at least one of these drugs. And while they all have their benefits and limitations, which is what this episode is about, they will be, they are the gold standard across the globe. That's a very good primer for the three studies that we're going to talk about. And I guess we'll be able to get through these fairly quickly because they share a lot in common. Yes. Can you paint a picture for me about how this data has revolutionized how we treat hormone receptor positive breast cancer? Josh, I might start with the most important of our three studies, the most important because it actually has survival benefit data, spoiler alert, and that is with Mona Lisa 2. Other studies outside of the ribocyclib space include Monarch 3 with abemocyclib and Paloma 2 with palbocyclib. And I won't spoil the results of those. Uh, suffice to say that they're not as impressive as Mona Lisa 2. So Mona Lisa 2 is a phase 3 randomized double-blinded trial investigating the benefit of ribocyclib when combined with letrozole, specifically letrozole, versus a matching placebo in postmenopausal women with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, recurrent or metastatic breast cancer. And Josh, to start off with a question purely based on that spiel, why in all of these studies would we exclude HER2 positive patients? That's a great question, Michael. And I think the answer to that is relatively simple. If you inhibit just the CDK pathway, you're going to have another pathway that's going to be driving this. And in this case, it's the HER2 pathway. And ultimately, we have such brilliant and effective treatments for the HER2 inhibition that you'd be, well, you'd be, you'd be, um, juggling and potentially gambling with your medical license if you did not treat them with that first. That's a very dire warning from Joshua Hurwitz is don't juggle or gamble with your medical license. (laughs) But it is true. And I guess in the HER2 positive space, in the triple positive space, you will prioritize the HER2 blockade. And we've talked about this in a previous episode with uh, um, trastuzumab and pertuzumab. But you can always add on an aromatase inhibitor or other endocrine therapy on top of that to really get the triple block. But back to Mona Lisa. 
The study randomly assigned patients one-to-one to receive either ribocyclib oral from day one to 21, followed by a seven-day break, which is a very standard regimen for CDK4-6, or a matching placebo in combination with letrozole. The eligibility criteria were quite broad. Patients had to be postmenopausal, they had to have a good functional status in ECOG 0 to 1, and adequate bone marrow and organ function, so fairly standard stuff. Patients were excluded if they'd had previous treatment for metastatic breast cancer, although they did allow adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Patients were stratified by the presence or absence of liver or lung metastases. And a big part of this uh, question about ribocyclib is how effective it is in patients with lots and lots of disease, disease affecting the liver, disease affecting the lung, which we'll talk about in a moment. The Would you reference that as a visceral crisis, Michael, with high burden of disease? Well, I mean, if they had a visceral crisis when they entered screening for the study, they would have been excluded because they would not have uh, had adequate organ function. But I guess higher burden of disease, higher a higher number of disease sites, metastatic disease sites, will put someone at an increased risk of a visceral crisis down the road. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, which has been published uh, several years ago. Uh, We'll still cover it, though. The secondary endpoints were overall survival, chemotherapy-free survival, and an analysis of subsequent antineoplastic therapies. There were 668 patients in the study, and one thing that the authors noted is that there was a very small proportion of patients who were non-Caucasian, which they attributed to the recruitment drive taking place almost entirely in North America. So a little over 80% of patients were Caucasian, as compared with 8.4% people of Asian origin, and 3% uh, of patients were African or African-American. In terms of other key demographic uh, data... 35% of patients had two metastatic sites and 34% of patients had three or more metastatic sites. The most common sites of metastases were bones in in 73.7% of patients and 20% of patients had bone-only metastatic disease. And as we mentioned before, the viscera, which were defined as lung, liver or other, quote-unquote, and 59% of patients had visceral disease. So, they're not selecting patients with very low burdens of disease where you would expect there to be a, a, a good outcome with the trial drug. But I guess, as we'll see with the results, and as you mentioned before, Josh, endocrine therapy by itself is still a bloody good treatment. So perhaps by trying to select for quote-unquote higher-risk patients, they're trying to see definitive definitively, if the addition of a CDK4-6 inhibitor will provide a benefit where it's needed most. I think that's it, Michael, with a lot of our treatments, especially breast with such good overall survival already, having the ability to discern actual benefit in a high-risk population is probably beneficial for the patient. That is very true. And as we'll see, and as I'm sure you have experienced in your clinical practice, Josh, as well, the toxicity profile of the CDK46 is relatively 
well tolerated. It's relatively minor. You do have the occasional patients uh, who have significant toxicity, but they're very much in the minority. So it's not a case of a small benefit at a potentially significant cost. But it is, of course, something to consider because you do have patients who, for one reason or another, are really not candidates for CDK46. Anyway, let's let's uh, drill down into the results here. So the progression-free survival we've known for a number of years that the addition of ribocyclib does significantly increase progression-free survival. Uh, 25.3 months compared to 16 months with a hazard ratio of 0.57, and this was statistically significant. Interestingly, this benefit was maintained regardless of the presence or absence of, signif- of multiple mutations, including uh, PIK3 kinase, TP53 mutation status, P16 protein expression, and interestingly, Josh, this was the one I found most interesting, key 67 expression. For those who don't know, most probably do, but key 67 is a marker of cell turnover, and a higher key 67 is associated with a more rapidly dividing and therefore more aggressive tumour type. But the benefit of a CDK4-6 addition to endocrine therapy was seen regardless of key 67 expression. That is interesting, Michael. And I think it does come to the fact that breast cancers are heterogeneous, but also there are multiple drivers of aggressiveness and it's not just key 67 that plays that role. You're absolutely right. There's still so many drivers and markers that we probably don't know about and will discover in the future. But this is the important bit, Josh, Um, the overall survival. And this was only recently published, uh, but it has sent, I don't know if uh, it did the same thing at your centre, but at my hospital, it sent shockwaves through the breast cancer clinic and everyone was saying, oh, we really need to change things because... The overall survival was still significant. So in the intention to treat population, the overall survival with the combination was 63.9 months versus 51.4 months with a hazard ratio of 0.76 and a p-value of 0.008. So definitely met statistical significance. And keep that 51.4 months in mind because as Josh talks about his studies, we'll find that that is probably an accurate assessment of the overall survival with endocrine therapy alone in patients with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer because disclaimers about cross-trial comparisons aside, it is remarkably consistent across the three trials that we'll be talking about today. The 60-month overall survival rate was 52% versus 43% in the uh, endocrine therapy alone arm. So over half of our patients are now living more than five years, which two decades ago would have been inconceivable. The benefit was consistent across subgroups, but the magnitude did appear less in patients with visceral disease. So high volume visceral disease with greater than three sites, the overall survival was 55 months versus 46 months. In patients with liver disease, it was 37 months versus 38 months. And in lung disease, it was 59 months versus 52 months. Now, these are subgroup analyses, so you can't take them as gospel. And they shouldn't change your prescribing patterns, but it is something to think about and might be something to consider when uh, we get final data on abemacyclib as well. Uh, The time to subsequent chemotherapy, this was also very interesting, uh, was 50.6 months versus 38.9 months. So if we compare that to the progression-free survival figures, 
people are still getting a benefit of treatment regardless of what arm they were in beyond progression. So it suggests that on average there was period on treatment and then potentially a watch and wait time where the disease was relatively well controlled before they had to have subsequent chemotherapy. Looking at the total subsequent antineoplastic therapies, and this is something I wanted to ask you, Josh, uh, a significant proportion of patients, 21.7%, had subsequent CDK4-6 therapy, the majority of them having palbociclib. Have you seen CDK4-6 rechallenge in your practice? Our practice, we generally do not rechallenge. In some preclinical data, this is unpublished stuff, they have seen that occasionally resistance wanes and you could potentially re-challenge. But most of the time, if I'm looking for a second-line option, we will look at a trial because that's the best way to get the, the best outcomes. The second one we'd be doing is probably chemotherapy because it's proven and effective. The other option, of course, and remember these are patients who had uh, letrozole, is in certain patients, so, yeah. yeah, is full vestrin. So particularly in patients with a with a very strong endocrine driver, it is possible to switch from letrozole to fulvestrin and potentially keep the CDK4-6 going to try and break through that resistance. In terms of toxicity, uh, there were higher rates of toxicity in the CDK4-6 uh, group with higher rates of neutropenia, diarrhea, and vomiting. Josh, there is one side effect that always gets drilled into us about ribocyclib as compared to palbo or abema. Do you know what it is? QTC prolongation. Got it in one. This is our future breast specialist, everybody. But there was... So QT prolongation is the main thing with ribo. It's its own little quirk, and it's probably the one thing that separates it from palbo and uh, abemocyclib, aside from obviously the overall survival data. Uh, but there was but there was no new data on this in the update. So 2.7% of patients had prolonged QT, versus absolutely 0% of patients in the endocrine therapy alone. Um, So obviously when you're starting RIBO, it's important to do regular ECGs. At least for us, we do them for the first, I think, two or three cycles every couple of weeks. But uh, once once a patient is established on ribocyclib, it's unlikely that they will subsequently develop QT prolongation. So bringing it all together... Ribocyclib has taken the gold medal in the great CDK4-6 race in that it is the first CDK4-6 inhibitor to definitively demonstrate overall survival benefit in patients with hormone receptor positive breast cancer that is previously untreated. This does come at the price of a slightly increased toxicity, but again, remember that endocrine therapy is no slouch. So endocrine therapy by itself in this trial, people were still living for more than four years on average. And so if you have a patient, and we mentioned that there are patients who can't have CDK4-6, patients with significant heart problems or with uh, pacemakers or a propensity for arrhythmia are the main ones, but Endocrine therapy by itself is still a very good treatment. So that is the headliner of this episode, and Josh is going to deal with the the lesser runners-up. But I guess this is, as we will see, based on evidence that has come out in the last couple of years, this has dem- this has caused a significant change in prescribing where. Josh, I don't know about you, but when I started, palbociclib was the was the uh, CDK four six that 
tended to be prescribed most because it had what was thought to be a lesser side effect profile. It tended to... It it was not involved with the cardiac toxicity, but uh, now physicians who previously prescribed a lot of palbociclib on the basis of this evidence are switching to ribo. And would you like to illustrate why? I would love to illustrate why, Michael. Thanks for summarising Mona Lisa so very, very well. I have four different articles open up on my computer at the moment, and I I will be talking about the Monarch 3 trial. Just make sure you've got the right one up. Oh, look, it's chronological, so I've gone from 2017. And you might be like, Josh, why 2017? There's been a lot of updates, a lot of differences that have come about, and I think it's important to briefly summarise. So the Monarch 3 trial was abemocycline as an initial therapy for advanced breast cancer. It was a double-blind, randomised phase 3 study which showed abemocyclib or placebo plus a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor in 493 post-menopausal women with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, advanced breast cancer who have had no prior systemic therapy in the advanced setting. One of the differences with the bemocyclid, Michael, is it's actually a twice daily dosing. So usually it's 150 milligrams BD and you either get letrozole or anastrozole, which is, you know, once a day. So patients are having to deal with a higher pill burden if they're doing a bemocyclid over, say, palbo or ribo. Yes. And interesting, when we look at the breakdown of demographics, 30% of patients were of Asian background, which is, I guess, different to the ribocyclic group, which was predominantly a Caucasian. With these patients, at least 55% had metastatic recurrent disease and another 40% in both arms had de novo metastatic. There were a couple that had loco-regionally recurrent, but I'm guessing they've defined those as metastatic as well and they've got on the trial. The treatment-free interval, which I think is interesting, 60% had greater than 36 months. So this is a treatment interval before starting their first-line metastatic disease, and 28 to 40% had less than 36 months. Another thing to highlight is just the number of organ disease sites. About half in both arms had greater than three organ disease sites. Michael, in a breast cancer patient, what's the most common We've done this before, but I might as well just hammer it in. What are the most common sites in breast cancer you'd expect something to spread to? Well, bones would be predominantly number one. Yep. Liver is always a problem because significant liver toxicity, as you mentioned, can limit your therapeutic options. Mm -hmm. Lung. And we can't discount brain because breast cancer definitely does make a beeline for the brain. Although... It tends to be more the HER2 and triple negative ones than the hormone receptor positive ones. That's it. But I, I love when you say beeline. It's great. So I wanted you to bring that up again, just like last time. Beeline. Beeline. All right. <laughs> moving moving forward to the interim, I guess, results, and I will talk about updated analysis. So we saw a complete response in 1.5% of patients in the intervention arm, um, and Interestingly, partial response in 46% and stable disease in another 46%. So clinical benefit was seen in about 78% of these patients and 
in the placebo was about 71%. So at this time, it actually wasn't statistically significant, but the objective response rate was with a hazard p-value. The objective response rate was with a p-value of 0.02, with 48% having an objective response versus 34% in the placebo and non-steroidal AI. Other things to note in the forest plot is all age brackets benefited. Um, predominantly, Asians benefited a lot more, but I do wonder if that's also a small, smaller cohort. But there were 148 patients in that particular cohort. We also found that patients with visceral metastases did benefit, um, but those with bone only were less likely to benefit, uh, which is just something interesting to note. And there has been some updated data about giving anti-resorptive therapy in the metastatic hormone receptor space, and that actually does decrease bone-related events, but we will be talking about that more on one of our OncoSnack episodes. Stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for that. So what we've seen from this particular, I guess, first analysis is there was a progression-free survival that was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.48. And obviously at this point, there was no overall survival and they've kind of broken this down uh, depending on a number of sort of key factors. I think when we talk about toxicities moving along, there is one big toxicity that can be pretty rough with the bemocyclic. Michael, which one is that? That would be diarrhea, Josh. That would be diarrhea. For those that start on a bemocyclic, they're actually given a pack and this pack has some loperamide in it to help control it. So added to the pill burden of taking a drug twice a day, you're also much more likely to need ancillary drugs, I guess is the most appropriate word for it, with things like loperamide. That's exactly it. So 81% of patients had any grade of diarrhea and grade three and grade four was about 10%. Ongoing from that, we can't forget neutropenia as well with all of the CDK4-6 inhibitors. That's quite prolific. I mean, in a case such as this, you would generally delay by a week. And if you have recurrent neutropenia, then you would look at dose reduction. Moving on, Michael, I think I want to talk about the more updated trials because that's the important thing they in 2019 monarch 3 had a final pfs which i will now talk to you about what they found is an ongoing statistical benefit for progression free survival the abemocyclob arm had a significantly longer median pfs than placebo it was 28.18 months versus 14.76 months with a hazard ratio of 0.54. The objective response rate was 61% versus 45.5% in the placebo arm. And the median duration of response was longer in a bemocyclib, which was 27.39 months, versus placebo, which is 17.46 months. If we go back to the start of our talk, we were talking about while endocrine therapy is very effective, resistance inevitably develops and this shows that by inhibiting other pathways you can control the cancer for a longer period of time again in this particular study from 2019 we did not have an overall survival benefit at that point if we're looking at 
Things like waterfall plots, you do, again, see a benefit in a bemocyclib and a non-steroidal AI. You can also see the median percentage change in tumor size is better in a bemocyclib and AI, so generally about 70 to 80% versus about 40 to 50% in placebo plus AI as well. So you're actually seeing quite significant differences when it comes to tumor control, tumor regression as well. But it's not statistically significant, is it, Josh? It's only a trend towards overall survival. Yes, well, I yeah, so I will talk about that now, Mikey. Um, thanks for bringing that up. This is a update from 2022. So I've gone 2017, 2019, and now 2022. So the median overall survival for a BEMA plus a non-steroidal is 67.1 months versus 54.5 months at at that point with a p-value of 0.03 but it did not breach their threshold which is the issue they needed more events in either the placebo or the abemocyclib arm and interesting as per our prior conversation with your trials michael looking at those that received subsequent cdk46 inhibitor therapy 31 percent in the abemocyclib arm went on to receive a subsequent ai uh, oh, sorry 31.5% went to receive a subsequent CDK4-6 inhibitor and 10% in the placebo, which I found really interesting. You'd that is interesting. Maybe there was crossover that I have not alluded to for our lovely listeners here, but that seems very strange. I would have smacked someone on a CDK4-6 inhibitor the second I knew they were progressing. You'd almost expect it to be the other way around with more people getting subsequent CDK on the uh, controller. Exactly. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, It would be something interesting to maybe talk about at a later date. Again, toxicities were as we expected. So why there is a numerically favorable overall survival difference in the intention to treat population and visceral disease population observed with the bemocycleb and a non-steroidal anti- non-steroidal AI versus the placebo arm, there was no statistical significance because it did not meet the pre-planned threshold. There was a greater than 12-month overall survival difference between control and intervention arm, and there was overall survival benefit found across multiple subgroups that is, you know, worthwhile kind of highlighting. But again, none of these were particularly statistically significant. So I can't, I guess, recommend this. The thing is, we need ongoing follow-up for this mature OS. It's it's looking like there will be statistical significance based on the difference between the control and the intervention. But right now, we can't say anything. So it's not yet a viable alternative to ribocyclib from a statistical perspective, Josh? I do not believe so. I think looking at these numbers, it's really difficult to say, while you have statistical benefit in the ribocyclib arm, you do not have statistical benefit in the pelvo... Sorry, you do not have statistical benefit in the abemocyclib arm. One thing that I did like about Monarch 3 is their specific focus on patients with visceral disease. So they actually, rather than sort of having a post hoc subgroup analysis, they've actually got a uh, prospective subgroup where they look at outcomes with in, in patients with visceral disease 
And the be- the benefit there is quite significant, which would be something that would be interesting to look at, because that very well may be where Abema finds its niche uh, in the future, if it does prove to have a statistically significant overall survival benefit, is it becomes the mode of choice in patients with high-volume disease. And that's exactly right. And anecdotally, I had a patient who was in a situation with quite high burden of visceral disease and we put them on abemocyclid and there were some pretty pretty ridiculously amazing outcomes for this patient. And so, again, anecdotal evidence is pretty low, but if you look at, just kind of flag what Michael said, if you look at the number of organs involved at baseline and then you look at the uh, the uh, the um, hazard ratio, it's 0.7. Nine for that, and while the p-value is zero point four four one, you then have to ask yourself the question: It's like, okay, maybe just maybe there is some some benefit there that we need to kind of focus on. It's very much a watch and wait approach regarding abemaciclib, and it very well may carve out its own particular point or its own particular niche in the metastatic hormone receptor positive space. One drug that may not have a niche anymore is the third of our intrepid trio of CDK4-6 inhibitors, and that's palbociclib, because this is the one, and we've sort of taken this in a stepwise approach, we've gone from definite yes to a maybe, and now we're unfortunately at the part of the program where we're at the definite no stage. Would you like to talk about Paloma? I would love to, or Paloma too, Michael, but yes, I'd love to talk about Paloma. Or just just Paloma in general. Paloma. Um, So Paloma 2 was a multi-centre international double-blinded randomised phase 3 trial, was looking at pelbocycline plus letrozole versus placebo plus letrozole. The primary endpoint was a PFS, so progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoint was overall survival. Same, similar cohorts, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative advanced breast cancer, no prior treatment scheduling. And that's something that's important. We found visceral disease in about 50% of each arm of the patients. And if we look at disease-free interval, 40% had greater than 12 months and 22% had less than 12 months and another 40% were about de novo metastatic disease. When we look at the intention to treat overall survival, Michael, Pelbocyclib was 53.9 months versus placebo was 51.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.95 across that statistical interval of one and had a p-value of 0.3378. The post hoc sensitivity analysis, not exactly sure what that is, but essentially it still wasn't statistically significant and median duration of treatment was 22 months versus 13.8 months and um, discontinued study treatment was, I guess, 90, 90% of patients because evidently they've progressed at the time of this analysis. With the final OS analysis, the post-study systemic therapies were quite interesting. Probably 50 to 60% of both arms were actually switched to chemotherapy, predominantly capecitabine, ataxane, or an anthracycline. Only about... 12% went on to another CDK4-6 inhibitor and about 30% of the placebo arm into another CDK4-6 inhibitor. 
toxicity of neutropenia was far worse in this particular arm, 82%. And if you go down to diarrhea, only 30%, which is probably why from an, a clinician perspective, we would use pelvocyclib more than let's say a bemocyclib from a quality of life perspective. So unfortunately, there is no overall survival benefit of giving pelvocyclib versus let's say ribocyclib or maybe even a bemocyclib. It is probably the black sheep of the CDK46 family in that it is almost certainly the one that's going to fall by the wayside. I guess, Josh, a couple of things about this. How has this news of a lack of statistical significance in the overall survival setting, how has this news affected uh, prescribing behaviour on your end? I've mentioned that it's it's caused quite a significant change in the places I've worked, but... Has it had a significant impact on your practice and the practice of the uh, specialists you work with? Because there is a, a proportion of people who basically sort of clump these three agents together and despite the the numbers still say that if ribocyclib is better, then it's probable that all of them are all of them have a benefit over and over endocrine therapy alone. And in saying that, Michael, they probably all do have a benefit over endocrine therapy alone, but you have to take into account all the other facets of this drug rather than just a numerical value. I think the practice I have seen with the specialists I work with is, yes, it has made a difference. It's very difficult to convince someone to go on pelvocyclib if the overall survival data is not there. Ribocyclib is your choice really, because I think a bemocyclib for the first couple of months can be quite rough to tolerate. And I say this because I find with patients who are on these inhibitors, while they have potentially pretty difficult toxicities early on, it actually improves over time. And I guess the other hypothetical I wanted to run by you, Josh, say, for example, and this is a very narrow hypothetical, but say, for example, you had a patient who had significant cardiac toxicity. Remember that a large proportion of women who have metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer patient are postmenopausal, older, more more comorbid. You have a patient with cardiac toxicity who does not like the sound of the diarrhea related to abemocyclib. And so your choices are endocrine therapy alone or palbocyclib. And you have no other other CDK46 options, would you still give them palbo or would you go endocrine therapy alone? That's such a difficult question to answer, Michael. I think you could give them endocrine therapy alone. I think that's going to be a conversation with the patient because on one side there's a numerical benefit, not a statistical benefit. And let's say they have no toxicities, there's probably no harm by giving that CDK46 inhibitor. I think it'd be, if it was my practice, I'd be very much trying to convince them to have the CDK46. I think that would be their best interest. So ribocyclob in this case, or abemocyclob given their cardiac toxicities for this specific patient. But you could try an endocrine therapy. You could even try full vestrant, which has shown some benefit as a single agent and is no slouch. That's very valid a very valid response josh i didn't really have a an opinion one way or the other but i was interested to see what you would think 
like you say, it's probably best that you discuss it with the patient because um, because palpacyclib, that's sort of our that's sort of our um, get out of jail free card here. But palpacyclib does have its own side effects, so it's important that you lay it out. Pretty much. So, as a summary, in three sentences or less, ribocyclib remains the gold standard for now with abemocyclib hot on its heels, whereas poor palpocyclib, due to a number of factors, has come in third place. Absolutely. So that wraps it up for today. Thank you very much for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. And join us next time where we'll be starting a very rambly, complex journey full of missteps and uh, shortcuts into the world of early head and neck cancer. This is something that you don't often see unless you're in a centre that's built for it, but it is definitely one to know. So we look forward to seeing you next week.